Hello, I'm Kevin Richard. Last week on the podcast, we heard from Governor Brad Little as we recapped the record-setting 2021 legislative session. For this week's podcast, we offer a minority report of sorts. We sit down with one of the state house's most prominent Democrats, House Minority Leader Alana Rebell of Boise, to talk about the education topics of the session, other topics from 2021, and her party's prospects for the 2022 elections. Here's what she had to say. Representative Rubel, thank you for taking the time to be be with us this week. I wanted to start with the news conference that you all did last week at the very end of the session, and you talked about how this was really kind of a lost opportunity. Ex- elaborate on that for, for listeners. Yeah, I, I thought we headed into this session with a rare, almost unprecedented opportunity um, in that we had over a $600 million budget surplus just for this year. We had over a hundred, over six hundred million in the rainy day funds on top of the six hundred million mm-hmm. in in budget surplus for this year, and we had just waves of federal money flowing in. Um, so we were looking at this situation where we had you know a billion and a half dollars basically, and maybe more than that, um, to work with, uh, and it was just such an incredible opportunity to address all the needs that the state has had for a very long time. Things like you know we're one of only four states that has no early childhood education. And we were actually targeted to receive federal funds mm-hmm. to address that. Um, we are the bottom funded in the country on K-12 education. This was a golden opportunity to address that. We've had a long-standing teacher recruitment and retention crisis because our pay for teachers is so lousy. We had all the money in the world to address that. Um, higher education has been really struggling to regain its footing since the deep cuts of the recession era 08-09. And we had a golden opportunity to fix that, um, not to mention things we could have done on infrastructure and in other areas. And for the first time in living memory, we had all the money we could dream of to fix all of the longstanding serious needs we had in education. Um, and none of them got remedied. In fact, many of them were made worse. Uh, and instead, um, GOP leadership in our legislature decided to basically take all that money and just drop a giant money bomb on the wealthiest people in the state. Uh, And they took, you know, $400 million out of the general fund and gave a giant income tax cut where basically all of the money is going to go to the wealthiest folks in the state with barely crumbs going to those who need it. Um, And that just felt like a tragic lost opportunity um, to address so many real needs in education and elsewhere to help the, the the working folks and families and kids of this state. And I know one of your concerns, one of your party's concerns about the tax cuts is sustainability and what that means down the road for education and other needs. Oh, that's exactly right. I mean, I think it's this was a huge, huge cut, um, you know, very large in the short term, but also very large in the long term. Uh, and I think it's going to take us a generation to recoup that revenue um, to actually ever be able to be in a place again where we can pick ourselves up from being bottom in the nation on K-12 funding. Um, and instead of putting any of that really toward meaningful increases in, in education, well, they actually turned away $40 million in COVID relief funds for K-12, but there is really nothing meaningful to speak of at all in terms of bolstering education funding, teacher pay, any of that. Um, Really, the biggest chunk of money went, as I said, to that House Bill 380, giant tax cuts for the wealthy, where those in the top 1% are going to get $10,000, and those in the bottom 20% of income are going to get about $50. What about education from a policy perspective? I mean, it's not just the budget, it's it's the policy aspects. I mean, there were some bills that you and your your caucus opposed here on the House side that 
that were killed on the Senate side, but then there's still House Bill 377. So assess right. this session from an education policy perspective. Well, this, this session was incredibly frustrating from an education policy perspective. And some of it, I think we haven't really seen the end of the damage because, you know, as I mentioned, heartbreakingly, we did not restore higher education funding. We actually cut it. But they were pretty vocal in saying, you know, we're watching you universities. And if we feel that you're including social justice concepts, we're going to cut your budgets more. Um, so you saw 377, which I think was kind of an overt assault on academic freedom and very much making clear, you know, we don't want you talking about race. We don't want you talking about social justice. Um, but they also, you know, in their messaging through the media made clear that, you know, and if we see you talking about social justice and if we see you doing these things we don't, you, we don't like, um, you're going to have even deeper budget cuts than what you saw this year. Um, which, again, pretty appalling that we saw budget cuts in a year when we were sitting on a billion and a half dollars. Um, but, you know, the wins, it was kind of unfortunate. The wins that we saw in education policy really came from stopping one terrible idea after another. There, there really wasn't anything good happening. Um, it was just playing defense and saying, you know, well, are we going to be able to protect kids' access to sex education? Are we going to be able to protect kids' ability to join a club without incredibly onerous barriers on that? Are we going to be able to protect, you know, teachers and their ability to, you know, have collective bargaining? Are we going to, you know, it was almost overwhelmingly playing defense against one really terrifying bill after another. And so it was a win in the sense that the Senate Education Committee blocked a lot of those. They did a great job of blocking terrible bills. Um, but in the end, 377 went through, which I think is, you know, an assault on academic freedom. Um, and as I said, I can't think of anything good that happened in education policy. It was just trying to limit the damage. Mm -hmm. Let me talk, and this gets a little bit into tactics and in strategy from a minority party perspective, but a couple of issues, and you've touched on them both, that I wanted to have you talk a little bit more about. The early education grant. Um, you took the House floor on the last night of the session, and you made kind of an 11th hour appeal to your colleagues to to not let that just sit on the third reading calendar for the end of the session. Was it kind of a last ditch, uh, you know, kind of a Hail Mary pass? <laughs> it was. <laughs> I mean, I had tried, you, you have no idea what a nag I had been behind the scenes. Uh, you know, I was hounding the speaker. I was texting him all the time. I was saying, you know, is there any favor I can call in here? Is there anything I could do? I was hounding the floor sponsor. You know, is there any possible way? I was calling Ayaki. I was calling those in the corporate community. I mean, I was trying to do anything I could behind the scenes to try to exert pressure to bring up that vote. Um, and then, you know, was hoping that some miracle would happen and they would allow it to come to a vote because I'm quite certain the votes were there. But that's what I was going to ask. The votes were there. The reason the they speaker yeah. said emphatically uh, last week that he didn't think the votes were there. Yeah, that's It not was true. a tie vote in essence when it, it was came up in March. Absolutely. Um, the votes were there and I think that's why they didn't bring it up for a vote because if they knew it would have died on the floor or if they weren't certain, why not let it come up for a vote, right? They let it come up for a vote before it had lost. There's no reason. It's because they think they thought that it would pass that they wouldn't let it come up for a vote. Um, and I'm not 100% certain of what there were. There was some reason, I don't 
don't know if it was because they wanted to guard people's freedom scores or what. The votes, I think, were absolutely there. I mean, one of the members, it was a dead heat vote. It was 35-35 in the first place. One of those no votes has departed the legislature. So that alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, I know of at least three other members who were no's before who have flipped a yes. Um, so I, you know, unless there were a lot more than that who flipped to no, and I don't know of any who had flipped to no, I think it would have passed. Um, but Republican leadership did not want to let it come up for a vote and pass. Um, and I don't, I don't know if it was to guard their performance in Republican primaries or to keep the right wing happy or what, because the right wing really hated this bill. Um, but uh, I think it would have passed, and we'll never know because they wouldn't let it come up for a vote. But it is still sitting there in kind of limbo, kind of like the session was left in limbo with the recess vote. I mean, is it really um, is it really dead or is it? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm not sure. But, you know, the hearsay that I've heard from my friends on the other side said that the speaker told him in caucus, told him in caucus that no way was this thing going to come up for a vote, no matter what they heard from the Senate, no matter what they heard from the media or from, you know, IACI or anybody else, this thing was not coming up for a vote. Um, so, again, I was not sitting there in caucus to hear that, but that was the report I got that he was going to block it from getting a vote no matter what. Now, maybe he'll soften on that, but that was the last word I heard. Um, and certainly the fact that he left it hanging there on the last day was supportive of that evidence. <laughs> um, but it's, I mean, it's just awful for the kids of the state that this happened. Um, and as I said on the floor, I mean, it's it really pains me because I have four kids. They all went through early childhood education. It was exceptional, and it set them up you know, for a lifetime of learning. They were in so much better shape going into kindergarten. Um, they, it, it was enjoyable for them. They learned how to socialize with other kids and be friends and how to cooperate and sit quietly in class and their colors and their numbers. It was such a positive experience and we paid for it and it cost a lot of money. Um, and the well-to-do families are doing that now. It's that the benefits are overwhelming and this is something that rich families have access to and it's a huge setback for the poor kids of the world where they are coming into life with a deficit by the time they're four years old uh, because rich kids have had this big advantage that they don't have and this was a golden opportunity to close that gap. One of those equity issues, one of the many equity issues that kind of emerged. A huge equity issue that hits kids, you know, when they're three, four, five years old and sets them up at a disadvantage for life before they're even going into kindergarten. And we had an incredible opportunity to rectify that equity, you know, disadvantage um, that was just thrown away for absolutely no coherent reason. Let me ask you, and I guess this is also a strategic and tactical question. The higher ed budget. Mm-hmm. Democrats opposed it in committee, and then Democrats opposed it over on the Senate side when it passed. But House Democrats voted for that budget, and you're obviously not a fan of the cuts in that budget. How do you reconcile that? I mean, how do you, um, you know, yeah. come to terms with with voting for a budget that? We, we wrestled with that issue in caucus probably more than we wrestled with any other issue on what to do on that because it was galling beyond belief. It was infuriating <laughs> that, as I said, we're sitting on one and a half billion dollars. Um, 
our universities are the top economic engine in our state. I mean, putting aside just, you know, we all want to see kids succeed, we all want to see them have opportunity, but just from a dollars and cents perspective, you know, I think every dollar you put into BSU yields $8 to the economy. Um, it is the best thing you can do for economic growth, for job creation, for anything you look at. You know, investing in our universities is the very best thing you can do. And it literally just made our heads explode that here we are with a wash in money and they want to cut two and a half million dollars in the university budgets and for the worst imaginable reason you know basically to punish them for having conversations about racial and social justice with you know what kind of a cave do you have to be living in right now to be ignoring that it's the you know top issue in america we're going to tell kids at our universities they're not allowed to think about it and discuss it this issue that's all over the news um and so it was it, it was physically painful to be voting for a budget that takes two and a half million dollars out of universities. And that's going to be real cuts. I mean, that's going to be real, you know, layoffs, um, cutting into student counseling resources, cutting into faculty. Um, but we were basically presented with a hostage situation. It was kind of like, well, if you don't vote for this, Democrats, then we're going to have to turn to far-right Republicans to get a vote, and that's going to take a $10 million cut, because we're not going to be able to pick up the Republican votes to make up for this unless we cut $10 million. So Democrats, you better vote for this at a $2.5 million cut, or we shoot the hostage, and it's going to be a $10 million cut. So um, you were being pressured to vote for it with the $2.5 million cuts for fear that it would be worse. <laughs> Even though exactly. it would have passed without your Well, I mean, that was, it was not clear to us what right, was going right. to happen. And, you know, I guess to make a statement, I, I was not there actually today. I had a substitute that day. I, I might have flipped my vote on the floor if I saw it passing without us because in terms of making a statement, um, I, it was very painful to make a statement of supporting that budget. It was an awful budget. Um, <laughs> but, you know, initially in all the negotiations leading up to that, it was like, well, Democrats, you better vote for this or it's going to be something a lot worse. Um, and so we kind of promised our support for it under those promises. And, you know, our Senate Democrats had a hard time getting on board with that. They were basically saying, you know, let's call the bluff. Um, how can we in good conscience vote for something this awful? Who knows what the right answer is there? I mean, the right answer would have been no cuts, but that was not one of the options that we had to vote on. <laughs> but not an easy vote for you to go back to your district, which is right on the doorstep of Boise State. Well, it was an awful, no, it was an awful no-win situation for us because, you know, we were basically told, you know, that we're not even going to run this through JFAC unless we know we have the Democrats' votes on the floor of the House, was kind of what we were being told. So we were told, you know, we had to promise our votes on the floor of the House for this $2.5 million cut or else a much deeper cut was going to be right. put through JFAC. Um, and so we kind of already committed by the time I got to the House okay. floor. Um, and, you know, would it have been worse if it were a $10 million cut? And then, and then it came out to our people in our districts that the reason it was a $10 million cut was because the Democrats wouldn't vote for a $2.5 million cut. Mm -hmm. um, so we were really over a barrel and just faced with nothing but bad choices. What do you expect to see now the rest of the year? I mean, the House recessed with the idea that it could return. What are you hearing at this point? What are you expecting? And um, what are you comfortable with from your perspective <laughs> about what would justify a, a coming back later this year? Uh, you know, I wasn't comfortable with any of this. I voted against this whole plan to recess instead of adjourning sine die. It creates this really uncomfortable 
you know, constitutional twilight zone where nobody really understands what's going on or remember the Senate's sine die and we've recessed and what does that even mean for, you know, the governor's powers? Can he call us back? Does he have to call us back in? Does he have five days or 10 days to veto? What can he do on rules? No, you know, it's very uncertain constitutionally, which as an attorney, I don't really like to be creating a constitutional crisis. Um, <laughs> I suppose the only upside is that it means the pre-K bill is still hanging on the calendar. So I suppose there's some conceivable way we come back and vote on that. Um, I have no idea what they have up their sleeves in terms of, you know, what House Republicans want, why they were so adamant about recessing instead of signing dying. I assume it has something to do with, you know, restricting the governor from being able to accept federal funds. Um, if I had to guess, I would say that's the driving force because we saw this session, certainly, they wanted to turn away a lot of federal money. And I think they were concerned that if we were out of session, the governor would be able to accept that federal money. And this way they can, you know, say we're still in session, so you can't accept any of it. And we have to be consulted and we want to turn it down. And it comes down to something we saw during the session on, on several occasions where federal money was turned down, whether it's yep. the early education or the COVID testing, $40 million for and school they, COVID testing. It was frankly miraculous that they didn't turn away the $70 million for child care um, relief, which I think they were planning to turn down. And it was only because of heroics on the part of the public where all the child care providers shut down for the day and they all showed up and parents showed up and they made a big stink at the Capitol. Um, my understanding is JFAC was planning to turn that money down too and did a last minute turnaround when they saw you know very strong advocacy coming from the public. And they were like, okay, fine, we'll pass a bill to, you know, that barely passed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, that was, you know, they almost turned down a lot more. I mean, they would have, if the House had really had its way, they probably would have turned down. And the majority of House Republicans voted against that daycare money. Um, it only passed because of the Democrats. So they would have happily turned down well over $100 million in federal funding this year. And what happened with the child care money? It kind of dovetails to the other questions I wanted to ask you, which are more about the state of the Democratic Party right now heading into uh, next election cycle. I mean, your party has struggled in the past few years to try to take what happens, what you're concerned with, what you're criticizing mm -hmm. on the floor, and make it resonate with voters and make it relevant to voters and make you know, choice yeah. <laughs> relevant to voters. I mean, how do you... Is it different this time, and, then, and if so, is it, how, why is it different this session? I really hope it's different this session. I mean, the challenge that we've always had is to um, get voters to engage on issues instead of just party affiliation. Because, mm -hmm. um, you know, certainly the Republicans have a vast advantage in this state on party affiliation. They have, I'm sure, more than twice as many registered Republicans as there are registered Democrats in the state. Um, but when you look at issue affiliation, actually, they, the, the people of Idaho, whatever their party, affiliate much more closely with the Democrats on issues. Um, I don't think you'd be hard pressed to find a single regular person in the state of Idaho of whatever party um, who is really excited about the idea of having our schools be the worst funded in America, um, one of the few states with no early childhood education, and take all of our money and give it all away in a giant tax cut to the richest people in the state. Um, I don't think that's a popular policy position. And actually, when they poll these things, it's not. I mean, you know, BSU <laughs> polls all kinds of issues every year. And on almost all of them, people actually align with the Democratic platform. They're just not voting that way. Well, and I was struck, too, the, the survey that the Boise Metro Chamber and IACI and the Idaho Education Association did. First of all, the, all three groups, those three groups, 
yeah. aligned to do a survey, but then did a survey of likely Republican voters who were very critical of the way the session unfolded. I think even Republicans in this state actually, or you know, voters who are voting straight ticket Republican, are actually aligning much more closely on with the Democrats on issues. I think there's a very profound disconnect between the policies that are being pushed by the GOP politicians running the state house and the policy preferences of your average GOP voters. Um, so our challenge is bridging that disconnect and, and really getting through to folks who, well, most people won't pay that much attention to politics. They kind of vote like, I don't know, I'm a Republican, my daddy's a Republican, my granddad's a Republican, it's just what we do in our family, we vote Republican. And to break through that, which is actually a pretty powerful pull for people, and break through that and say, wait a minute, let's talk about issues. You know, what do you want better schools for your kids? Do you want better roads? Do you want better bridges? If you actually care about good government and getting the things that you need out of your government, you need to break out of that cycle and start voting with the people who support you on the issues you care about, which are actually the Democrats. Um, so we need to step up that messaging machine and figure out how to penetrate that profound party affiliation that people have. It's also a candidate recruitment issue from the top of the tech to legislative races, and that's been a challenge for your party as well. Well, that gets hard, too, because there are so many areas that have never even had a Democrat running in decades and decades and decades. And if they have, it wasn't just a placeholder who didn't really run a real race. And so, you know, it gets very discouraging for candidates because they're looking like, oh, goodness, no Democrats won since the, you know, FDR administration. Do I really want to go through all the trouble of knocking on strangers' doors and raising money and all this when it's so hopeless anyway? So it gets into this, you know, cycle of people feeling it's futile, so then they never try. So then we'll never know. Know if it's futile if no one's ever going to try um, but we're going to really step up our game on recruitment and I think there's a window this year where I think some people at least are waking up to how poorly served they are by GOP leadership particularly in the house where do you see yourself on a ballot next year I mean you're one of the most prominent <laughs> Democrats in the state house uh, where um, do you see yourself <laughs> And it's well, an unfair question. We're only a few days out from the yeah, session. Yeah, well, so. you know, Mayor Beter always told me that, you know, when you're running for office, he said, you need, you don't need a green light from your spouse, but you need at least a yellow light from your spouse. You can't have a red light. <laughs> um, so right now, I think I have a pretty solid red light from okay. my spouse on anything other than what I'm doing right now. <laughs> so I think uh, I plan to be running for my seat in District 18 and running to continue as the House Minority Leader. Well, Representative Rubel, thank you for catching up uh, with us and giving us your perspective on this session. Appreciate it. Oh, such a pleasure to talk to you, Kevin. Always enjoy it. Thank you. Again, that was House Minority Leader Alana Rubel, Democrat from Boise. As the 2021 legislative session wraps up, it's hard to believe, but we're going to start to write more about the 2022 elections. We had some news this week with Lieutenant Governor Janice McGeehan making it official that she is running for governor. Uh, setting up for a potential showdown with incumbent Brad Little in the uh, 2022 Republican primary. I'm going to be our lead writer on the gubernatorial race. Sammy Edge is going to be our lead writer on the state superintendent's race, which is also taking shape. In addition to covering the politics, we'll continue to cover education policy and the intersection between those two coming up on Thursday. Uh, Lieutenant Governor McGeehan's uh, indoctrination task force holds its first meeting. We will have full coverage of that. And we'll have full coverage of everything else that's going on in education policy and education politics. So do follow us at idahoednews.org for the latest news. Follow us on Twitter, also at idahoednews. We uh, tweet out any bulletins and any breaking news on that platform. 
Follow us on Facebook and join the conversation there. And of course, come back next Friday for another edition of this podcast. I'm Kevin Richard. Stay safe and have a good week.